Sound Design Live. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Berkeley, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today I am speaking with Professor of Entertainment Technology at New York City College of Technology, sound designer and author John Huntington. John, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So we were just saying that it's hard for me to say the name of your university because I went to City College just on the other side of the park, I guess, and um, it can be a little confusing. So I want to point out right away that John's blog is really fun. Uh, it's called Control Geek, and he posts lots of information about audio, obviously, and control networks, but also great travel photos and weather information. Um, he just published the second edition of his book, Show uh, Networks. Fourth, fourth edition. Fourth actually. edition. Okay, sorry. Right. Show Networks and Control Systems, which is currently available in print and hopefully as an ebook in 2013. That's, uh, that's the plan. Okay, cool. <laughs> Um, so, John, I normally work on pretty small productions, and I don't think I encounter show control systems very often, but as I understand it, um, and probably as most other people experience it, usually audio, lights, video, and set are, are all separate departments, um, but when they interact, that's a show control system. Is this correct, and could you give a couple of other examples to kind of get people in the mood? Yeah, my definition of show control is just connecting uh, two or more systems together. So that could be sound and lighting, sound and video, video and pyro, you know, whatever it is. Um, and uh, I think it it's ranges from, it can be used on very small productions and it can, of course, be used on theme parks. And people think about, you know, when they think about show control, they think about theme parks and stuff like that. But I give you an example. I haven't done much sound design in recent years, but... I did a show at the public theater, I don't know, 15 years ago. And for that, we had uh, sort of a classic sound effect, lighting effect combination that comes up a lot was uh, sort of a camera flash strobe effect. And then also the uh, shutter release. And of course, in those days, it was film. So you'd hear the auto winding film go as well. So that happened, I don't know, 10 times during the show. And, you know, getting three, a stage manager and two operators to kind of sync all that together exactly right over and over and over again. Uh, it's not only difficult, it's also really tedious. So with that, I mean, this was 15 years ago, we would just, just ran MIDI from the uh, lighting console into our sound system. And then just every time the uh, lighting operator would fire the strobe effect, then the uh, the sound would also go, and they could hit it, you know, over and over and over. And this is really everybody's seen this now these days. But back in that time, it was kind of more like people were like, "Wow, that's really cool." Um, and then what's also happened in intervening years is that uh, that's the way to connect together multiple sort of disciplines, uh, entertainment disciplines together. And these days, a show control system uh, of any sort of sizable scale is almost certainly a network. And that's also happened in lighting and sound and video. Uh, every one of those areas is built now a lot on networks. So even though you might have a very small, for example, a lighting system that just has uh, a console and then some sort of DMX processor that's separate, the way most likely that's going to be connected today is through Ethernet. So that way, what's happened over time is that that Ethernet has become sort of a core 
technology for pretty much every department except for maybe paint and uh, props, you know, non-animated props. And so the, sorry to keep running on here, but the, the book has always been about control systems, entertainment control systems, and, and also part of that was uh, show control, and still is show control. But uh, over time now, the, I retitled this fourth edition and also uh, completely updated it and added a whole lot of information on uh, networks. So the new title now is Show Networks and Control Systems. So it does include show control. That's still an important part of the book, but it also includes a lot on networking, which I think is like one of the core technologies in our field now. Yeah, I'm really interested in the subject myself, and people should check out the interview I did with Ellen Julin from Meyer Sound. Um, yeah, definitely. About a, maybe a couple of months ago, and she talks a lot about audio-video bridging. Um, and I should go ahead and point out that listeners of this podcast are going to get a discount to buy John's book, and I'll put that in the show notes for this podcast. So John, in a recent interview, you said that 90% of your book's content can be found on Wikipedia, meaning, to me, most of the information is available for free. So could you talk about how you compiled this information and adapted it to be relevant to technicians and designers working on live events? Yeah, I think in the interview, I was just sort of making the point that... um you know, you can, if you want to know what an IP address is, you can go on Wikipedia and there's a pretty good explanation of it up there. And I certainly use that all the time if there's some strange protocol I've never heard of. That's always the first place I look. But what Wikipedia and other sources like that don't really do is put it in context for our market. And like everything in our market, I mean, we're very tiny, tiny market. Um, and I, I'd have to double check the numbers, but the last time I checked, I looked at like the revenue of GE and compared that to our entire industry of like all live performance. And I think GE alone's revenue exceeded the entire industry or something like wow. that. I have to double check that. But so in the big scale, we're pretty small. I mean, you know, compare us to Apple or Google or somebody like that, you know, any one company can dwarf our whole industry. So we're always sort of adapting and uh, sort of abusing things from other markets. And we also uh, end up with, you know, something on tour with the circus is going to get beat up in a way that probably only, you know, the military would exceed. So, um, so what we've done for years and years is adapted these technologies from other industries. And that's kind of what, uh, even when I wrote the first edition of the book in the mid 1990s, um, that was, uh, what we were doing back then. And that's sort of what I've done my whole career is look at, uh, okay, this is what we're doing, but what about the, uh, you know, this other field, do they have something that we can use, to use and you know to do this easier or better, and I'm still kind of doing that. I was just looking up sensors yesterday for an effect we're putting in our haunted house, and um, you know just looking at straight industrial control stuff, and you just won't find that in you know from Roscoe or somebody or ETC or somebody in our industry. You have to look outside of it. So I think that's the point I was making in there is that there's lots of information there, but um, not all of it is relevant to us, and also some things we do is very unusual. Uh, for example, gets a little bit technical, but I took in preparation for this edition of the book, which is really a complete redo. Um, I took the Cisco CCNA boot camp, which is a really sort of the entry level enterprise networking uh, kind of training thing, a week long, heavy duty stuff. And our instructor said that their definition of a uh, small network was less than 100 routers. <laughs> and in our business, most networks that we build, and we might build fairly complicated networks, but most networks that we build have zero routers. 
So it's kind of, you know, so we, I learned a lot in that class. It was really interesting. I mean, some of it was really tedious and boring also, but um, uh, it just shows you where we are in this market. But on the other hand, um, we have people from our industry, like Steve Carlson as one of the original guys from, worked on the first light board, computerized light board that was used on Chorus Line wow. here in New York in the 70s. And he uh, headed up the Power Over Ethernet Committee. So, and he said that the, the big networking companies kind of looked at us as sort of that oddball people who were like the you know, heavy duty power users of this stuff in a very niche market. So we're kind of, uh, and now we're actually developing protocols. You look at things like ACN, uh, and I'll probably throw out a lot of acronyms, unfortunately, but uh, that's a very sophisticated networking protocol. It was designed completely for, our, for and within our business. So we've, we've grown up a lot, but we're still, you know, uh, we're still on the coattails of uh, the larger enterprise IT market. I like that. So the information is available, but a much easier way to understand how it applies to our industry is through your book. Yeah, and I would say, I think I just mentioned it, but the uh, I'm doing a, an experiment this semester in my class at City Tech that rather than doing uh, a lecture uh, in person, I'm doing the lecture... Uh, as a video online, and those are available on my website for free. And so I'm doing one, <clears throat> excuse me, one for every chapter. And I'm just got up. I just this morning finished chapter 17, so I'm kind of working my way through. Uh, and those, uh, it's not all the information that's in the book, but I think some people learn better from listening, and some people learn better from reading. So uh, if they want to watch these videos, they're they're free and viewable on my website. But I mean, I think. So far, I've made you know 17 hours of, of lecture or something. So uh, that's a lot of information to take in that way. Yeah, I really appreciate that, and I'm sure your students will too. Yeah, and in fact, I could go off on a tangent about that. But so far, it's been really great because what I'm doing now is I start, I basically cut out the lecture part of our class, and they just watch that online and uh, read the chapter, oh, and then they take a quiz. And then when they show up to class, we just start with a review of anything that wasn't clear, any questions they have, and then we jump into a lab. And uh, it's been interesting. I've had to make labs for things like error detection and uh, IP addresses and stuff like that. That's been kind of an interesting process this semester. Um, but so far, it's been going great. We'll see how they do in the midterm. Let me ask you a question about your class a little bit. I hadn't planned this, but when I was in school, I found that almost everyone else I was in school with was mostly just interested in doing their own music. I was one of the few people who actually wanted to work on other people's projects and wanted to learn all about the technology at hand. So I'm impressed with this because it seems so far away from anything that um, the group of students I was studying with were interested in. First of all, no one was interested in live sound, and I only got into it after a few years of uh, working in the industry. And second of all, uh, no one was really interested in something as technical as control systems. So who are these students that you have? How do, they, how do they get interested in this kind of thing? What kind of jobs are they looking for? Do they have an idea, or uh, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about it? I'm curious. Yeah, they kind of run the gamut. It's it's pretty interesting. We get students that are very focused. I would say sort of like I was when I was uh, you know going to college. I mean, my my dream I think when I was thirteen was to go on tour with Led Zeppelin, 
and uh, you know, that was the first concert I ever saw was Led Zeppelin. So the um, uh, and then I there wasn't really a concert touring degree, so I ended up uh, doing theater, and I did that for about. 20-some years and then realized that I really don't like most theater. Um, I, I love live performance, but I, I have, I just, uh, anything with a fourth wall, I generally don't enjoy very much. Hmm. So that's, I could spend an hour ranting about that, but the, um, but I love, absolutely love live performance. And I think people squander the engagement you can have with an audience by, you know, pretending the audience isn't there, which always bothers me. But anyway, so uh, got into that. And so we get students who come from that sort of background like they just really want to do this they want to go on a tour they want to do whatever and then we also get people that uh you know ran sound in their church and they got interested that way and then we have people who just have no idea and they just sort of stumble into it because it's an open admission school uh so we have no we have no interview or anything like that they just have to meet some basic academic requirements and they're in uh, which makes for a really fascinating group. And we have people in CUNY, there's students from about 120 countries, and our department is pretty well representative of that. And uh, I would say every one of our classrooms or any sort of gathering of our students looks like a, a like if the uh, you know HR department at a big corporation wanted to make a diversity poster, they could just come in wow. and take pictures of our classrooms. So it's really fascinating. And so we get students coming out of there that some are perfectly happy doing uh, corporate AV, you know, forever because it's a good living and they don't have to work in their father's uh, tire repair shop uh, or go into the, like train repairman's union or whatever like their, you know, family uh, did. And then we have students that move to New York, you know, from the Midwest or wherever uh, or were frustrated in a conservatory theater program and come here and are very focused. So it's a really fascinating mixture of that. Okay, and we've well, been around... The, oh, sorry. Sorry, to, uh, let me interrupt you real quick, because this is what is interesting to me, because I didn't know that corporate AV even existed until a couple of years ago. Um, and I guess that's because I grew up with people playing in bands, and we were all into music, and so we all wanted to be in the music industry. How, how do people <laughs> growing up and going to school, how do they even, how do they know about corporate AV and that that exists as a profession? Oh, that's, yeah, I might have misspoken there a little bit. Yeah, we don't get many people that come in wanting to do, like, wow, I really want to do, you know, Microsoft Industrials forever. Um, but we get students that, uh, well, we have one student that's now been, uh, a, uh, uh, I was starting to say, we've been around about 10 years, so we're starting to get a pretty decent alumni base out there. And we had one student that just really loved, you know, home stereo and, you know, AV, and he's kind of a video geek. And he ended up working for uh, Scharf Weisberg, which is world stage uh, now. Okay. And they've, they've been, he's been there probably 10 years, and he's traveling all over the place and everything. Uh, so he kind of fell into it. Uh, but, I mean, uh, and I, I wrote an article about 10 years ago called Rethinking Entertainment Technology Education. That's on my website that kind of defines our approach. And at that time... I looked up all the numbers uh, for, like, you know, revenues for live theater and uh, concerts and corporate AV. It's hard to find a corporate AV number. But all those areas, I mean, the biggest, if you look at us, look at it from the supply side, from uh, AV Staging House, which we have quite a few of in New York, um, I'm sure you do there as well. Mm -hmm. um, their bread and butter is, uh, is you know, is not uh, regional theater or even Broadway. Uh, it's, you know, Industrial, uh, corporate meetings, special events, and and the internet in general. All of this is working to our advantage because the the more my theory is the more time people spend at home on the computer, the more they value the experience of going out and rubbing shoulders with actual people. 
And then, of course, the other factors about that, and I'm getting off on a tangent now, I'll, I'll wrap it up quickly. Um, with the record industry collapsing, that's been fantastic for the live sound business because you have to tour now to make money, which means that lots more opportunities for people in our field. And then also, if you want to distinguish your brand or whatever, you know, the way to do it in New York where you're just inundated with stuff is to sponsor an event uh, and do things like that. So we have a really solid industry here that, that survived the recession pretty well. And for example, I do the sound system for the Tribeca Film Festival outdoor, uh, they call it the drive-in. I've done that for the last seven or eight years, and that's usually sponsored by you know American Express or somebody like that. Uh, so that's a way for them to, you know, get their brand out there and that's all all that works in favor of our industry and it's really made a market uh for our students and just one other quick thing sorry i'm kind of rambling but the um when i got out of college you know there wasn't these options and there you know that corporate meeting market was just kind of coming around uh because it was really expensive and all that stuff and you know Disney, Cirque du Soleil didn't really exist in, you know, 1985 when I graduated from college. And uh, Disney, if you wanted a job there, you'd have to kind of go down there and meet somebody and know them and work for 10 or 15 years. And now you go to LDI and there's, they're recruiting, you know, Disney, Cirque du Soleil, people, cruise ship, uh, you know, they're recruiting. So in the time I've been in the business, it's gone from this oddball thing to a much larger still oddball thing, but there's a lot more uh, opportunities out there. It sounds like you're saying that... Um Audio for live events is actually a lot more valued and more visible now than it was, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I would certainly say there's a lot more of it. And part of that's the technology. You know, when I started, you know, most sound systems were crap. And uh, you could, if you spent a lot of money, you could get an okay one, you know, in the mid 80s. And then now, you know, you go down to Canal Street here in New York, you can buy pretty good stuff for pretty cheap that'll work pretty well. And so, uh, you know, that, that bar is raised. You still, of course, if you want the really heavy duty professional stuff, you got to pay for it. Um, but I mean, the, the level of gear has come up and, and I think one of the reasons I'm teaching now is I think the level of, uh, sort of operator competence, uh, has not yet equaled the gear because <laughs> I would still, and I have a whole series on my website about this, this thing. Cause I'd say most, I go to see a lot of you know, shows and concerts and stuff. And I would say it's pretty rare that the, I really actually enjoy the sound. And it's usually, I just went to see uh, a show uh, last Friday here in Town Hall in New York, in New York and uh, sat in the balcony and it sounded horrible. You know, oh. you walk down by the mixer, it sounded fantastic. Guy was doing a great job. You know, the PA wasn't engineered properly to cover the, up the balcony. And it's, uh, I think that when you're spending that kind of money for a ticket, uh, you should uh, you should get your money's worth. So, how is that going to change? Or do we need a critical mass of people of audience members complaining for them to hire a systems engineer to make the coverage to make the coverage yeah. uniform? Um, or I don't know. Is that ever going to change? I, I'm somewhat pessimistic about it, but I think that the um, uh, I don't know. I wrote uh, on my w- website. I wrote uh, I don't know five six years ago a thing called like Concert Goers Bill of Rights. Where, <laughs> I saw uh, that. Yeah, I, yeah well, I think it's basically the problem is that a lot of people, um, you know, the old joke in, in the stagehand business is, you know, everybody knows two jobs: their job and sound. And uh, but at the same time, 
people, I think, are very intimidated by by sound. They don't know have a language for it or how to, to speak about it or anything. So what I wrote was like four or five criteria that basically are if you're just an uh, average music fan who just loves music, but you don't know any you know f- uh, uh, frequency from phase or anything like that. You know, there's four or five basic things, and I probably won't remember off the top of my head, but like, can you understand the words? I mean, that's, that's that simple. Is it too loud? Can you hear every instrument you could see on stage? And I would say that show I saw the other night failed that because, I mean, there's an electric guitar on stage, and I couldn't hear it. You know, that's ridiculous. And, it's, uh, and the vocals were muddy and all that. And you don't have to get into, you know, wow, it was really boomy at 500 hertz to just say that, uh, you know, I couldn't hear the guitar. You know, and if, if I think if uh, there is a critical mass of that, uh, then something might change. But of course, as you know, the the way these gigs run is so complicated and varied that there's not a lot of incentive to do a good job on it, unfortunately. Or not, I shouldn't say it that way. There's a lot of obstacles in the way uh, to doing a good job because people, you know, the, in this case, I'm pretty sure the PA was pr- provided by the local promoter. You know, the, the mixer who was doing a great job, you know, has never been there before. He's, he doesn't have time to go re-aim the PA. It may not even be, uh, you know, that good at that side of it. And he's got to just do the best he can. But I think, you know, we need to get beyond that. Sound Design Live produces free, independent, personal reports to share techniques, technology, and motivation from audio industry leaders. You can subscribe to the podcast at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. Well, let's talk about advocating for people who are in this position of being the operator or the front of house mixer. Let's talk about how much power they have to affect the end result a little bit. And I'll go ahead and share a story from my experience. I was called with short notice to do sound design for a musical. Uh, This was a couple years ago. I kept running into obstacles right away. Um, The space was difficult. I couldn't get the speaker positions I needed or acoustical treatments for the set design. Um, And finally, when my microphone selection was rejected, I just, I had to walk away. I had to quit because I felt like I wasn't going to be able to give them the results that they wanted, even though they kept saying, no, we'll work it out, we'll work it out. I finally had to say, you know, you keep saying no to everything I'm telling you that you need. (laughs) And that was the first time I had ever done that. And it was really strange, but I'm wondering if you've had any similar experiences and what your attitude is about working on a project where you can't get the right equipment. I think it must happen pretty often that operators and engineers are put into positions where they they feel like they can't really produce the results that everyone expects. Yeah, I would say I totally agree with you. I think at a certain point, if you're going to put your name on it, uh, you have to be proud of it to some extent. I mean, you can tell your friends at the bar that, oh, this was horrible and I couldn't get what they wouldn't give me what I needed. And, you know, without being, you know, pissy about it or, or being a diva. But then there's some basic things that you need. I think in my own personal experience, I've had a full-time job uh, since the day I graduated from college, uh, which I don't recommend, actually. I recommend go fool around for a while first. But um, And I was working for a film special effects company that I, I uh, graduated Saturday, moved Sunday, started work Monday, and I'd never really stopped since then. And then all my sound design projects, I basically kind of... So I've made my living doing that, working on lighting systems or stuff that I enjoyed, or film special effects or whatever. Um, 
And then I've been very selective about the type of sound projects that I get involved with. So I think I've been able to pre-screen for that exact thing. And because I don't have to pay my rent based on it, if it looks like this is going to be a thing where they're not going to take sound seriously, uh, then I don't, I don't get involved in the first place. But I, I certainly, uh, I've been in other situations similar to that. And I think, yeah, you, everybody has to make their own decision. But there's a certain point where... You know, you can't say it for everybody because you got, you know, your rent payment due and you need that money. You know, you got to suffer through it sometimes. But I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really tough situation. I was thinking about in your case of the concert, let's just say that that front of house mixer really cared about every audience member hearing really well. And he might have said to the concert promoter or to the manager, you need to hire a systems engineer to make sure that what I'm mixing sounds great at every location. And they might have said, mm, okay, we can't afford that. And then he might have said, okay, well, I guess I'll do it, but it's just going to sound good at my location. You know, that, that kind of thing might be happening often, or he might oh, just yeah, not know. Absolutely. But I feel like that's a situation that other people must run into. Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, I'm simplifying it down just to, to not um, you know, ramble on too long. But yeah, we, we know that the situations are incredibly complicated. Um, but I think it has to come from the artist and the relationship with the artist because, uh, for example, a friend of mine, uh, Jamie Anderson, who's now um, uh, at the, one of the owners, or he and his wife are the owners of uh, Smart, of Rational Acoustics, uh, he was on tour with Dave Matthews' band, and uh, they came into Madison Square Garden for like two nights or whatever, and he was the system engineer. So first night, uh, it sounded pretty good, and I went and visited him. Actually, I visited on the second night, I think. But between the first and second nights, the band actually authorized a work call in, in Madison Square Garden, which is not cheap, and they re-aimed the, the long-throw PA elements they had. So, I mean, that comes from, you know, that's a level of scale uh, that not a lot of people are operating at, but that, there's an awful lot of bands, and there's, there's some very well-known ones that just have always have, actually, that I don't want to name online, but I'll give you another example of a show I saw at the Garden where opening act was uh, Patti Smith, sounded great. Uh, the main act sounded horrible. So no change in the PA, uh, but the band was terrible. And it just, I mean, the band wasn't terrible. The sound was terrible. But, you know, that's their friend from, you know, the bar from 40 years ago. So they're not, you know, nobody's telling them that, it's, that it sounds like crap. And they're not hearing it because they're listening on in-ears or whatever. So uh, it's a very, very complicated system. And I don't think you can, there's anything I can say to the frontline people other than the one thing I would say, or two things I would say, one is, you know, walk away from the console a little bit. I, I have a feeling if that mixer walked upstairs, and he may have, I don't, I don't really know, uh, he would have heard it and not been happy with the sound up there, and he might have asked for it to be fixed. Uh, or, you know, but then the, my other thing, and I have no evidence to back this up except my own experience, but my hypothesis is that uh, mixing and system engineering is kind of different brain wiring. Like, I I'm, I'm really enjoy system engineering, I, uh, fixing problems in the PA. I like hear distortion, it drives me crazy, and then I can kind of visualize it and go after it. But I'm not a very good mixer because I don't have the concentration for that. I'm very easily distracted by things like noise and distortion. Uh, so there's a lot of other people, though, that I know are brilliant mixers um, and fantastic, and they, they can do an amazing job. But they're not, uh, just for some reason, it just doesn't come as easily to them to kind of visualize the sound waves traveling and stuff like that. So my hypothesis, which I'd love to research someday, is that that's sort of two different, you know, 
uh, aptitude sets that people have. And then, of course, if you're only going to hire one person, they're going to hire the mixer. So, uh, because you can't do anything without them. But, uh, you know, really, I think it's like two mindsets and two people that really should be doing different jobs. But obviously, that's not practical on a lot of small shows. How do you get to be a systems engineer? Because I've always thought that would be a fun job to do, but I've never met anyone who does it, and I'm not really sure how you would even get into that. Who hires for it? Yeah, well, I think I think I mentioned before, you sent an email or whatever, you should definitely interview uh, Bob McCarthy. Uh, be a great guy to uh, give you the, the answer on how he got into that. And also Jamie would be another really good, um, uh, a great interview for that kind of stuff. But I, I'd say usually the way it works out is that on, at least in touring and stuff like that, you know, the PA is often provided by a company and the system engineering aspects of it, you know, come with the PA from the company. So uh, most people that I know that get into that usually end up working for some uh, provider and then they're, you know, they're the person that's sent out mm-hmm. uh, to deal with it that way. There's not a whole lot other than Jamie and Bob and a couple other people. There's... I don't really, and Jamie's more involved in his uh, company, I think, these days. He's not doing a whole lot of uh, frontline system line, but that's basically all Bob does anymore, uh, and writing books, you know. But the, um, for those guys, uh, there's not a whole lot of sort of freelance uh, work in that field. It usually comes with a, from a company, or it's just part of somebody else's job. I think anybody can, can learn about those things. Uh, and I, it's actually an interesting parallel to sort of show control. Like, I get questions from students all the time like oh how do I get a job in show control and my answer is always go be a really good lighting technician or video technician or a sound technician or what engineer or designer learn those other learn one field really well and then learn as much as possible about another field Uh, so the same sort of idea there's not a whole lot of like careers in that but people who kind of fall into that area usually come up through some other route John do you think there is a growing demand for a higher quality, I don't know, concert going experience. Do you think, for example, I could start a new music venue and market it um, mainly on just having a premium listening experience? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I think that would be great. I think would be very, if you, if you got the money to do it, I, I would go. Um, but the uh, I, one thing that's interesting is that um, I got from Ticketmaster, I got an email after the show. And it said, please review your experience. So I actually said, well, I'll take a look. And I went on there, and they actually had a, uh, a um, uh, entry on the thing asking about the sound in the room. And it was way too short, but you could actually rate the venue, rate, rate the sound of the show. And I thought that was, I only discovered this like yesterday, but, uh, and I'm kind of busy with 10,000 other things right now. But at some point, I'm going to see if there's some way... Uh, uh, if anybody has time and interest in this, like if you can get an API to get in to pull out that review data and then just do it sorted out by venue, that would be really amazing to see is the average audience member, you know, uh, aware of this. I know they're aware. I mean, people I talk to are always aware of this, so they just don't know how to express it. And uh, so, yeah, it would be an interesting thing. But I mean, the other problem is. You could have the best PA in the world and be perfectly aligned that you're getting just optimal coverage in every part of the venue and then have somebody come in and, uh, you know, the drummer plays loud and then the guitarist turns up and now it's just deafening and the poor front of house person is up there just riding the vocals up. Mm. Everybody's ears are bleeding and it sounds like shit. So it's very hard to guarantee that as a business. Time frets upon better things than a 
Let me get back to your book for a minute. Your book is intended for people like me, and it's good for answering questions. I don't think I would read it from cover to cover because I have a hard time retaining information that's not immediately relevant or solving a problem.、Uh, so let's talk about some questions that your book can answer. This might seem like a small thing, but I don't know much about DMX, so I started. Reading that chapter, and I learned that you shouldn't use microphone cable, for example, to transmit DMX because it is not compliant with the DMX standard, which I never quite understood、um, because the cables often look similar. What would happen if I accidentally used the wrong cable or sent a DMX、um, signal down a multi pair snake with other audio things going on? Well, I think you just have. A nuclear explosion and <laughs>、uh, and、um, people would no, die. Yes, everyone will die immediately across the world.、Um, no, I mean that, and that's a pretty good example of an incredibly complicated problem. Uh, uh, the why that's actually true, and in the book, I just sort of gloss over、uh, what it is because honestly, I, I get I understand the basics. I study the basics, but. To really explain why that's the case, you have to get into like transmission line theory that needs a lot of math and stuff. But、okay. um, the basic thing is that it's the, the real, the, the simplest way I know how to put it is the DMX signal、uh, is 250,000 bits per second. So that's way, 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 way higher than audio, which of course is you know, maxing out,、uh, in my years, max out at like you know, 15K now. So.、Um, The,、uh, so, the, the frequency response of the cable basically degrades at higher frequencies,、uh, mic cable does, because it's optimized for those lower frequencies. And then you get reflections and all kinds of other issues、uh, in there. So, the, the hard part is that it might work perfectly, you know, but you're taking a risk because it might work perfectly until some other thing in the environment changes and now it doesn't work. So, now at five minutes to showtime, All your, your, your line DMX control stops working and、uh, the lights go out, and you don't really know why because you saved you know, $10 on a, on a cable. So that's one of those things that、uh, I think you can. The basic thing is it's just not designed to be in the capacitance of the cable and things like that. It's just not really designed for, to transmit that data well, and it's better if you just don't. It's just bad practice to use it in the first place. But if you're you know, on tour and you can't find the cable and it's the last minute, you know, it probably will work.、Uh, but you're, you're, I think now you're becoming the, the engineer of DMX and you're kind of risking、mm-hmm. that. So it could be a temporary solution, but, but setting up these systems is all about show reliability. So it would、right. definitely not be the reliable solution. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to mention, though, I thought was great the way you said to use the book because that's pretty much the way I designed it.、Uh, it you could read it from beginning to end, and I actually have a, a stagehand friend of mine here in New York who's actually doing that、uh, because he's just one of these guys that wants to know everything about everything.、Um, but I, I, it's very modular, it's broken up into multiple parts and many, many chapters,、uh, and there's lots of cross references in there between the sections. Um, which is one of the advantages of doing all the production work myself. And the,、um, uh, but yeah, it's absolutely designed that way so that if somebody who knows about sound and they want to read about DMX, they should be able to find that. Conversely, if you're a lighting guy and you want to read about MIDI, you could read the MIDI chapter, and then anybody can read the networking chapters and so on. So that's great to hear that, that it worked in that way. John, this is kind of an open question. I don't know if you'll have anything to say about it, but、um, I'm trying to build a database of information about. 
how to set up computers so that they will run very reliably for show critical operations. Yeah, in in the book, uh, I actually have a uh, series of guidelines. I, I have a whole chapter on my own system design principles, which are sort of generic to any sort of system. Oh, great. Whether it's a sound system, lighting system, whatever. Um, and they can't be very specific because it's written down, and of course everything changes. But I, the basic principles are, are kind of mostly common sense, but I think if people think about them, uh, it makes sense. But basically you know, really just pare down the machine to, to wh- whatever type of machine it is. There just shouldn't be anything on there other than what you absolutely need for the show. Uh, keep it off the internet unless you absolutely need to, and then you really got to, you're opening a giant can of worms. And not even from some, like, attacker getting in. Uh, you, you might even have the thing just decides, oh, it's time to update my software in the middle of your heaviest queue. So if you're not on the internet, it's a lot less likely to do that. Um, and then I think the other thing, uh, I think in general, and I need to write more on this when, one of these days when I get, get time, but I'm a big believer in systems and sort of uh, boundaries. And that's one of the great things about lots of things moving on the Ethernet is that uh, in, in the old days, if you had a complicated system, there might be information getting in and out of the computer 12 different ways. Now we just go through Ethernet and we can run something like Wireshark or whatever that uh, is a you know analysis a packet uh, analysis program and see all the information coming in and out of that one point. And I think that's you have to think about it uh, in a way in terms of reliability. You don't want to make choke points or um, uh, and I talk more about this in the book chapter. You don't want to have single points of failure and things like that. But I do think if you have boundaries, it makes the system a lot easier to troubleshoot and. Uh, uh, a lot easier to, to fix when there's a problem, which should, you know, and then you're going to go through those problems a little bit earlier and get things sorted out. And then I think my, after safety and my design principles, uh, my number one thing then is just keep it as simple as possible. If you don't need something for the show, just get rid of it. Because mm-hmm. it's just going to, you know, oh, well, this has a nice red blinky like and, and the, the girls at front of house are going to like it or whatever. You know, that's not going to be great if your uh, show doesn't run or there's some other problem. So just take, and I, I, I find this myself where I'll just be designing a system and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, do I really need that? And I'm like, no, I just need to get rid of it. Even though it's cool, it's new, it's exciting, whatever it is, you know, just simplify it down. So that's kind of a rambling. And I think any, any particular list has to, would really have to be like on a website somewhere where it's con- or wiki where it's just constantly updated because as we know, you know, everything just changes and changes and changes. Um, which is why I really like, uh, you know, dedicated systems, whether it's a, you know, mixer or a uh, show controller or whatever, something that's sort of boxed in and constrained, I, I think is a good thing because that means the people who developed it have a known set of uh, criteria and, and issues and the driver's correct and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think the more constrained you can make it, probably the better off you're going to be. The two main steps are make it run stable, and then the second thing would be then never change it. But that's really hard to do now because software gets updated pretty frequently and operating systems get updated pretty frequently, but, but that's a step that I think we forget about and maybe impossible eventually. Maybe with dedicated systems, that's not true, but a lot of times, even with our computers that we mainly use for audio, we also use them with a few other things and we want our operating systems to stay up to date, for example. Yeah, and this is a big, this is a big quagmire now with the security stuff because in the previous edition of the book, I had I actually advocated to disable automatic virus checking 
uh, and that type of thing uh, on the show machine. But then I learned at school we had, uh, you know, if we put a machine out that's not completely clamped down and rewrites itself, you know, every minute, uh, that thing will be just filled with some crazy virus and malware within 10 minutes when the students get on it. And the reason is that they're getting some crack software from some, you know, Ukrainian porn site or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that thing's full of malware. And the, the route getting into the machine was the USB drive. And, of course, this is, we're not the only ones who had this problem. The, the, department, the Pentagon Department of Defense had the issue where they started... Uh, just putting super glue in the USB port, <laughs> and then of course the uh, wait. Tell me, I didn't hear about this. Can you tell me this story? Uh, I'd have to go look it up, but that's the, okay. I guess that's that's, that's pretty much the entire story. Yeah, they well, what happened was I I actually have it on uh, uh, on my blog. Is always my answer for everything. I put it online up there. Uh, I think if you just search Pentagon on my blog, you'll find okay. it. But but then of course the other thing that got transmitted by USB drive is uh, Stuxnet. And Stuxnet was the thing that um, destroyed the centrifuges in the Iranian uh, nuclear refinement facility, whether it's weapons or not. Obviously, it's for weapons, but um, which has pretty much been admitted that this was a joint U.S.-Israeli uh, effort uh, to do this. And that that plant was not on the internet, but it had USB drives, and people would need to update software or take a report somewhere, or whatever. And soon enough, somebody took one of those USB drives home. Uh, and there you go. Wow. So um, I know uh, World Stage. The, the last time I talked to them about this, they were actually on corporate events where you need to be able to have somebody just walk up with a USB drive and load their presentation. They would now have one machine that's sort of the DMZ that's really locked down, and all it is is a server. So you stick your USB drive on there, copy out your PowerPoint file or whatever, and then transfer that over the network into the show machines. So the show machines never get a USB drive in them, except you know known by the uh, uh, you know the in the shop mm-hmm. and tested out and cleaned out. Um, and then that way, if the this uh, machine gets infected, unless it's able to propagate that over the the network, which is certainly less likely, uh, then that's a way that they clean that out. And then the other thing I would say is that um, updating software and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the time to do that is when, if you're in a place where you do six shows a year, then do it after, you know, your first show close and well before while you have time to troubleshoot it in tech. I mean, that's, you know, find, updated. But also, if the thing's working and it's a show machine, this goes back to my, you know, simpler is always better. Uh, you really need that new feature. You know, you know the thing was stable for four weeks on this thing, and now there's a new feature that makes the screen, you know, red instead of green. Do we really care? You know, can we run on the old version? Um, and this is something that we never cared about back in the day when it was all dedicated hardware because you're just like, okay, well, I bought that. I can't really change it. It's in the rack for 15 years, and then we take it out and buy a new mm-hmm. one. Uh, and now basically anything in the rack has a computer in it, so it, this is always an issue. But, I mean, unless the, you know, the upgrade to whatever it is, whether it's firmware or software, does it really solve a problem? or add something that's critical to your show, then why do you need it, you know? So that's, it's a, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough thing, but this is, again, the, I think the solution is more, is more knowledge, people knowing about it more. Well, super glue in all of my USB drives. <laughs> yeah, that's right. John, let's talk about the weather. 
You have published a lot of storm-related entries on your blog, um, often related to live event incidents, disasters, bad things Un- happening. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. And it sounds like most weather-related incidents at live events can be predicted and avoided. You criticize event managers for using the act of God excuse, and in each incident, you cite meteorological and visual evidence of dangerous weather conditions that should have been acted upon. Uh, The best solution, as you point out, is to hire a meteorologist for accurate warning and analysis. But could you walk me through, walk us through the steps to look up a show location on the National Weather Service website and understand some information about safety conditions? And I should go ahead and point out that you have a video on your site on this very topic called The Weather is Not Boring. Um, It's an hour long, and if people want to take a look at it, they can actually skip into 20 minutes. And that's where John really starts to talk about how to check for severe weather on the NWS site. Um, But anyway, I was hoping you could uh, give a short overview of the process. Oh, sure. And I I should just say I've been interested in severe weather my whole life, and then in recent years when... uh, um, mobile internet became feasible. Then I've been uh, storm chasing, and I spent my, um, my I was on sabbatical last spring, and I picked the spring so I could go out and chase in the plains, which I did. And of course, it was the fortunately for everyone else, it was the uh, least number of tornadoes since the 70s, which is great for the inhabitants of the plains. But I was kind of hoping to see one, but um, but then unfortunately, with this string of just ridiculous uh, tragedies, I got pretty pissed off, and I. I uh, wrote up a lot of stuff on the website about that that I and I some of that was written kind of in anger but I don't really back off any of it because um, in this day and age there's really no excuse well there's no excuse for these at all and I think especially when you know the cheap trick stage was one of the first ones to blow over last year and fortunately nobody was hurt Um, but that thing if you're any kind of weather geek you look at that you just look at the sky at that site it's obvious something's coming and the fact that they just figured well we can play through it uh, you know they they were very lucky, and then by the time they got to the Indiana thing, I mean that was just outrageous. Where I can't remember how many people were killed now, but uh, I was really just pissed off with that whole thing. And then when the report came out uh, detailing the, I, and I had blamed the management the whole time, uh, and then when the report came out just detailing the uh, the time they frittered away, I mean that cost people's lives, and including, and I. It's hard to even talk about it, but you think about one, there's this Union stagehand was one of the guys killed and he was up in the trust spot position and rode that structure down. And you can imagine what his last seconds were like. And absolutely no fucking reason he should have been in that trust at all. Um, and so the reasons for that is that, you know, A, we have the, the well, there's probably A through Z actually, but... Um, I won't go that far, but uh, we have the ability to see this stuff. We have this information now. It's very easy to get it. Uh, it's not, and, and, and B, the other part of that, though, is it's not always easy to read the information. So if you looked at the, the um, radar at the Indiana site, uh, the Indiana State Fair, if people don't know what I'm talking about, where the stage, blew over, stage roof blew over and killed uh, many people, um, that system worked its way all the way across Indiana. Anybody could see that on radar. And then worse than that, and I'll define these terms in a minute, but they were already under a severe thunderstorm watch and a warning when the stage blew down. So that's why it's absolutely inexcusable that anybody was in the rigging and that, any, uh, that the show was still going on. You know, The show needs to go on until it doesn't, and that's one of the times when it doesn't. 
Um, and then, but uh, what I was going to make the point about that, the rain, the rain from the storm front had not yet arrived, and what actually blew the stage down is what's called a wind from what's called an outflow boundary, which is when the storm dumps all this heavy rain out, all that cold air hits the ground and it spreads out, and then uh, the the air goes out in front of it, um, and uh, it was very, very high speed. I don't remember the speed off the top of my head, but 60, 70 miles an hour. I think it was maybe... It's just below the severe criteria. Maybe it was 59. But so the storm wasn't really there yet. It was the wind in front of it. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, that is part of the storm. But if you looked at a, the radar... Now, however, the night of that, that happened, I was having a barbecue on my roof here, and somebody emailed me. I went up and looked up the radar archive, and just being a uh, storm chaser, I could look at that and go, wow, there's a big outflow boundary right there, and it's pretty obvious. So if they had a meteor... And the bizarre thing was there was a meteorologist on site but their whole job was to measure the rain uh, in case they had to cancel the show because of insurance needs. Uh, so if there was, you know, 1.2 inches of rain or whatever, they'd get insurance money from it. So he was on site just to do that. And uh, But basically that was just a monumental failure of leadership. And I, I urge everybody to go read the, uh, the report. Uh, I have it linked from my website, but it's on the um, Indiana State site. But just the, uh, the ineptitude and the leadership catastrophe that they had, I mean, that killed people, basically. So, but anyway, the, um, so I wrote an article for the uh, Plaza Protocol magazine, just came out in this past spring, and it's called Weather Resources for Show Crews, and I have a copy of that on my website. Um, but uh, basically, the, uh, I, the stuff that I use is mostly from National Weather Service, because we already pay for that with our tax money. Uh, and then I use a couple apps. In fact, it's, uh, there's a, um, I, I have the radar up on my laptop right now because there's thunderstorms in the area here, so I'm just kind of watching it in the background here. But um, I, I use a fairly sophisticated program that's a little bit, I wouldn't recommend for, for people who are new to it because you can misread the data and stuff. But, but anyway, so for the National Weather Service, if you just go to weather.gov, um, there's a search box there, put in your location. And they have a really good uh, forecast there, seven-day forecast. They just redesigned the whole website. Um, and then you can get hourly forecasts. And I think I see people misread these hourly forecasts all the time. Because uh, they'll read. I, I was actually on a um, kayak trip, you know, a three-day kayak trip up in Maine uh, this summer. And there was people on the trip who had looked at the hourly forecast three days in advance and were expecting a storm at 3 p.m. on Sunday. And I'm like, uh, no, it doesn't really work that way. It's just as it's just probabilities of what's going to happen. And so the the nearer the forecast is, the more accurate it's likely to be. So uh, an hourly forecast three days out is kind of an interesting idea, but that's not that's their best guess at that time. But conditions change a lot, and uh, some of these situations can be uh, very spotty. It can be really bad here and sunny ten miles away. But then uh, the two big things to look at when you, when you check the weather for your location is uh, the, the Storm Prediction Center down in Oklahoma issues, uh, continuously issues uh, watches. So they issue all the watches for the United States. And a watch just means that conditions are right for uh, severe storm development. And severe storm, uh, if, if it's a severe thunderstorm watch, there's also a tornado watch, hurricane watch, all these types of things. Um, but that, that can be issued hours and hours in advance. So, in fact, at the Indiana Stage Collapse, uh, Indiana State Fair uh, Collapse, they had been under a watch, I don't remember exactly, but six or eight hours in advance. They knew the conditions were, were bad in that area. 
uh, they were going to be bad in that area. Um, so that they issue relatively far in advance, and then when they see something uh, bad on on in the radar and the measurements, the National Weather Service, the local National Weather Service, will issue a warning. So, uh, for example, at the Indiana uh, collapse, they were under a severe thunderstorm warning for like six or eight minutes prior to the, when the stage collapsed. And that six or eight minutes, they could have evacuated the stage or that uh, technicians could have gotten down out of the truss and all that kind of stuff. Um, and severe thunderstorm means uh, 60, at least 60 mile an hour of wind, uh, one inch size hail and or a tornado. So one of those three things are anticipated. Uh, and then they put out a polygon for their best guess as to where those conditions might happen. And this is where people, this is where you really, it's hard unless you really go and look at a fairly detailed radar to know. But in my, uh, in my mind, any show site that's under a severe thunderstorm or tornado warning gets closed immediately. And th these things are issued, you know, maybe 40, 50 minutes in advance, if that. Um, and uh, that means imminent uh, condition. There, there is something bad happening imminent somewhere. Doom. Right. It may not. It might not hit you. It might go north and hit some someplace else. But uh, it's better off to just hold the show for half an hour, let it pass, and. Uh, and then if that had happened, then, you know, I, I, we probably wouldn't be talking about it right now. I think you may have made this clear, but when you open up the, the weather predictions for a specific location, it'll tell you immediately if there are hazardous um, weather warnings that have already been put out. That, that's right, right at oh, the top yeah. of the page, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I, I meant to mention that. You're right. But, yeah, it usually is a red box that says hazardous weather, you know, uh, in that area. And then you can just click on it and just read it. It's pretty... Um, uh, in fact, I'm looking at uh, the New York forecast right now. It says hazardous weather outlook in a big red box right on top of the page. And if I click on it, it says, uh, well, we have high rip current. Thunderstorms are possible today. A few storms could produce gusts or even damaging winds. Isolated tornado cannot be ruled out, especially during the morning hours, which are past now. Um, so if you read that in the morning when you come to a, a show, so show location, then you should just be keeping your eye on this stuff. And then if it looks bad, you know, just hold the show. And I think this is the same thing um, we were talking about before. At a certain point, you have to make a decision for yourself. Uh, like you were saying before, you're going to pull out of that musical because you don't want to have your name associated with something that the, you can guarantee the end product's not going to be very good. Uh, I don't really want to be up on a truss or a stage when the show site is under a severe thunderstorm warning. And the key point about that is you should be discussing this in the morning, uh, you know, not right then and go, oh, crap, uh, you know, what do we do now? And I actually wrote about that in the article I wrote that I, I did the uh, sound with the uh, Metropolitan Opera New York Philharmonic for about 10 years in the outdoor uh, park store here. And when we started, you couldn't get all this information on your phone because, you know, nobody, we, we had one cell phone on the tour, which is the size of a suitcase. Um, uh, so we would just say, oh, look at that, no, some rain's coming, and then we got a pretty bad storm, and we were kind of lucky nothing happened. Uh, but these days, you know, I can be watching that thing on, on a, a pretty good app on my phone, not the, just a normal, I wouldn't, I, I don't use any of the free ones because they're usually just not, the quality's not there in the data. But, you know, I can tell you pretty specifically where that storm is in relation to me. Uh, but I may not be able to see something like an outflow boundary, so that's why if it's a really big show, I mean, I think they owe it to the audience to have a meteorologist. Uh, you don't have to bring one in, but there's companies that do this stuff. And it's not that much money. I mean, for a few thousand bucks for the weekend uh, of a show, they could do this. 
And it's interesting because I think it's uh, I think it's Limp Bizkit actually now has they've hired that just for their own you know they have their own meteorologist wow. that watches out and it was just an article on this on the web in the last week or so um, I think it was the New York Times actually and um, you know that's the, they're not on tour with them but there's somebody in office somewhere who looks at the weather all the time and then they will call up and they have the tour manager's number and said hey you know, you give them a little briefing in the morning. Everything looks fine. Beautiful weather. Have a good show. Or, you know, things are, it could be a little rough today. Let's keep in touch. And then, hey, you're under a severe warning right now. You need to be taking action right now. And then the key is you need to already have determined what that action is uh, in advance or, you know, that's not going to, you're not going to know what to do at that point. Rock and roll meteorologist, John. That's going to be my yeah, new that's business. Right. There you go. But I mean, it's it's interesting because I, I find I got in. I've been into this stuff for a long time, but I, this I find uh, you know, of course, speed of sound is affected by the temperature. And uh, I've done a lot of outdoor shows, and when it's humid, I, it, just the transmission of the sound is always just I'm miserable. It never it never sounds any good if it's really humid. So there's actually kind of other interesting reasons to get weather information uh, anyway, and it's all sort of the same thing. But I would say. Like meteorology, much like sound, like you can operate at a pretty high level in it as a user and sort of a, you know applications person, but to get in and actually predict it, that gets into math and I, I you know heavy heavy duty math that I really suck at. So. <laughs> John, I like to ask people about their educational experience to help future students. So could you talk about your experience getting an MFA in theater and how you got your first jobs? Sure. I, I think I mentioned before, but when I was a kid, you know, I, I basically wanted to go you know, tour with Led Zeppelin or some concert tour. And this was in the 70s when that whole world of touring was really, uh, I mean, obviously music acts have toured forever, but uh the large-scale touring was really coming up in that time, and I think the first, as I said, the first concert I saw was Led Zeppelin, and I saw Peter Frampton like the year after that, and then Jake Isles and all kinds of people like that. Um, and then when I was looking around for colleges, I was looking for something close to that, and uh, the closest thing I could find was theater, and I went to uh, Ithaca uh, here upstate. I grew up down in Maryland, but uh, I searched around a lot uh, in the, uh, I think it was the Theater Crafts Directory, that's how long it ago it was, um, found Ithaca, and that was, it was a great experience for me. Um, that's a conservatory theater environment where you do a lot of shows, and uh, I talk about this in that article that I talk about rethinking entertainment technology. I personally, I'm not sure if I would take that route today because uh, there's other options out there like the program I teach in, but it was definitely a great experience, and I think people going there now have a good experience. Um, but my issue was that when I was, you know, 19, uh, art history was a waste of my time. Um, now, since then, I've, you know, I go to museums and I really enjoy it, and then I want to learn about it. But I think, you, like you were saying, I'm more interested in learning things that I want to know, like answering questions and kind of working back that way. So I was fascinated by electronics and all this, you know, sound and lighting and machinery and all this stuff. Um, and so I would have been better off taking some more of those classes and less theater history and that kind of stuff because I just didn't retain it anyway. Uh, and acting, I knew then I didn't want to be an actor, but I had to take an acting class. But still, it was a great experience for me. And then when I got out of college, I'm like, that's it. I'm uh, never going back to school. I'm done. <laughs> and I don't ever want to be a professor. And I, and I do still have an issue with 
Um, one of the reasons I really like our program is that we are very, very uh, oriented towards providing the, the needs of the industry. Um, and I, I, I have a bit of a problem with the idea of um, going to theater school to learn how to teach people in theater school, to learn how to teach people in theater school. And I see a lot of that. And I have really good friends and wonderful people in those positions. But I think for me, I needed to be more connected uh, in the field and in the commercial side. And then also, uh, I think it's also important that we need to be pushing things forward, not just recycling the same thing over and over again. And I've been uh, trying to do that, but I get off on a little tangent on that. Um, but then in, when I was at Ithaca, this is 1985, uh, we did a field, called field studies trip from Ithaca down to here in New York. And we went to see a whole bunch of shows and I saw uh, Sunday in the Park with George, um, which uh, we actually were there like the night of the Pulitzer Prize judging. So we got to see like the last time Bernadette Peters and Manny Patenka were wow. And I love that. Sh- I still love that show. I think it's a great show. And it had really, really cool effects in it. All these crazy lasers and the, the chroma loom and all that kind of stuff. So we managed to sort of talk our way backstage, uh, you know, with a prop guy mopping up, kind of let us at least walk around the stage a little bit. He was very nice. And um, I saw on this chroma loom a big, you know, sticker that said Associates and Farron on it. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So I went back. I don't know how the hell, I don't know how I found any information back then. <laughs> but, you know, without the internet, it's like crazy. I guess we had, I looked in the phone book or something, but I found this company, Sosies and Farron. Uh, they were way out on Eastern Long Island, uh, run by this guy, Brand Farron. And then uh, I just said, I want to, oh, and I had just done with some friends of mine at school, we had built some remote control special effects for like Harvey and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, Pippin, we made like a big flamethrower, Kimura flamethrower in Pippin, which uh, didn't work one night, and that's an exciting way to uh, uh, learn about reliability. Uh-huh. You know, but the, uh, um, so we had just done all this stuff, and I'm like, that's it, this is what I want to do, because it's this crazy interdisciplinary thing, lots of technology, working on cool stuff. So I started calling that company uh, like every week, and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I, I sent my resume, can I talk to somebody? No, talk, I called, and I'm literally... Every week I went to USITT, which was like the only, uh, you know, show back then. I met a guy there who's doing a talk about it, gave my resume. And then finally, literally the week before graduation, I'm like, all right. You know, I, I was looking at other things too, but I'm like, I'm going to try this one more time and then I'm giving up. And I called that day and I got a different guy on the phone and he said, can you weld? And back then I was actually a pretty decent welder because we were building lots of metal scenery and stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, can you start tomorrow? And I'm like, uh, I need to, I got to graduate Saturday. Can I start Monday? And it just happened that they were desperate for welders, um, you know, at that That's week. And I happened to, yeah. And I, I tell students, I think you make your own luck with this. If I had given up one week earlier, then, I mean, I was very lucky to get that position, but if I had given up a week earlier, then I, it wouldn't have happened. So you got to be persistent. And then while I was there, we spent the whole summer welding up all the scenery for this movie called The Manhattan Project. And then I actually got to go on site, um, and uh, I'm actually in it as an extra a few places, and uh, run all these robots and lasers and stuff. And that happened because, you know, when I get done welding and whatever, I'd go over and talk to the people doing the stuff I thought was interesting at lunchtime and say, hey, what's this? Oh, how's that? You know, and I'd talk to them, and then... Uh, then eventually the guy who was telling me I had one more week, one more week, uh, he was gone, and then I stayed there for two years. And uh, I was really, the thing I was very lucky about is we got in right at the end of the mechanical effect days. So we were doing uh, real motion control camera stuff. You know, ILM was a competitor of ours back in those, uh, in that time. Um, 
Oh, and actually, I, uh, when I was out in San Francisco in, in uh, January, February, I stopped in at the Mythbusters shop because I know some people working on that show, and I talked to uh, uh, Jamie, and he said he had actually applied at Associates and Farron in the 80s oh, wow. and didn't, didn't get the job, so it was kind of funny. Um, but the type of stuff they do, that's what we were doing. We had that shop with all the cool stuff, and we were, got really lucky to work on all these crazy projects, and we were doing crazy film projection stuff, so we did like uh, Pink Floyd and Roger Waters and all that kind of stuff. And then after a couple of years, I just decided, I, at that point, uh, uh, I, I was still doing interesting stuff, but I, I kind of thought that I wanted to be a production manager. So then I went, uh, applied to Yale, and after so two and a half years, after I said I was never going to school again, <laughs> I, I uh, went to Yale. And at those days, now the sound design program is separate at Yale. It's a separate design uh, uh, department, which is what it should be. Um, but in those days, sound was inside the, the technical design and production department. So I did a whole bunch of stuff there, and I would kind of gotten interested in time code and that kind of stuff, because we were making time code controllable film projectors in 1987 or whatever. Um, and I went to Yale for three years thinking I wanted to be a production manager and ended up kind of drifting back into sound stuff, uh, which I had been kind of afraid of in the 80s because when I was in college, because everything was analog and my brain just doesn't really process that stuff very well. But around then, I mean, I remember our first sampler had a floppy disk and one megabyte of uh, RAM mm -hmm. in it. Um, yeah, it was exciting. And... Uh, so that started coming out around then, and so I kind of got interested back in, in sound that way, and I hooked up with a director, Marcus Stern, uh, just a fantastic guy, and I did a whole bunch of shows with him, and then uh, he's now, he's still at ART, actually, he's one of the resident people at ART in the institute there. Um, I did, I don't know, 10 or 15 shows with him, and he's just a fantastic, like I said before, I was able to be kind of selective, and so when I graduated... Um, I, I got a job at uh, Theater Crafts and Lighting Dimensions then. I think that's the only job I ever actually saw advertised and applied for. Um, and then I did that for a couple years, and that was really great because all the people in the trade magazines now are the same people that were working there you know, in the early 90s, wow. and they're all really great people. So the people at Live Design, uh, Lighting and Sound America, uh, I think a couple others, uh, Plaza and all that are all former colleagues of mine from those days back at uh, Theater Crafts and Lighting Dimensions. That was lucky. And, yeah. So, and then I did that for a couple years and then Steve Terry, uh, who was, was then at Production Arts and now is the head of R&D at uh, ETC, uh, hired me away from Theater Crafts and I worked there for a couple years. And during that time I had applied, sorry, this is getting kind of long, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, um, during that time I took the Local One uh, Stagehands Apprentice test uh, somewhere along that line um, and then I worked for Steve for two three years and the union called me at that point uh, seven years after I had taken the test and wanted me to you know offer me the job of handing out drill bits to the ABC carpentry wow. shop when I was like traveling to Italy installing lighting systems on cruise ships and I'd already started work on the first edition of the book <laughs> um, so I said no and uh, they thought I, everybody thought I was crazy um, and uh, uh, and went the, then I uh, left there and I worked for a um, uh, Metropolitan Opera. I had a friend of mine working at the Met and uh, ended up working there for three years uh, at a time, again, where I was lucky is I was at a time where they were getting much more serious about sound. And in my time there, we really rebuilt the whole system uh, and, and also sort of 
uh, wasn't me, but I mean, we, the, the group upgraded the skill level there by, you know, six orders of magnitude. And now they have a really kick-ass sound department there, uh, which is great. And I still know lots of the people I work with are still there. And then I left that to work for uh, one of my sort of mentors, this guy, George Kindler, uh, who did like every cool show control thing in uh, Vegas. And uh, he got bought by PRG, so I was working in the PRG uh, office when they were acquiring everything. Um, and then unfortunately that didn't work out, and uh, I left there when I got an offer at uh, City Tech, and I actually uh, got that uh, offer because I got an online argument uh, with uh, David Smith, my colleague, uh, about something. I think it was on Theater Sound List or Show Control List. Uh, got arguing about something, and he's like, hey, you want to go have lunch? We're looking for somebody. And I've been there now like 12 years or something. Nice. So I went from never wanting to have anything to do with education again to uh, kind of drifting back into it. And the the great thing for me now is that I, um, I mean, we really have a, a really unique and interesting department where I think we're really kind of pushing the industry. In fact, our haunted house, which is running right now, um, or sorry, we're building it right now, uh, like that's all built on VLANs and managed switches and stuff. And I was able to do that because we're an entertainment technology department and not a theater department. So the, instead of spending $50,000 on costumes for this production, we could spend a few thousand bucks on managed uh, network switches. And now we're actually kind of pushing the industry a little bit, which I really think is what... Um, you know, we should be doing an education. We shouldn't just be, you know, retreading the same thing over and over. We should be pushing the market forward. So we're always trying to do that. And we're in our area because we don't have to churn out uh, lots of productions because we're in New York. We have lots of production opportunity for the students just built in. Uh, so we, we get to pick and choose the shows that we want to do. Um, so I would say... I don't think you need to go to school, but I do think you need to educate yourself one way or another. Because I have people who never, some of the smartest people I know never went to college, but they just voracious readers. Like my friend I was saying is just reading the entire, my entire book, page to page, cover to cover. Uh, he never went to college at all. or He went to six different colleges or whatever. Um, but he's a, a brilliant guy, and I think he, you know, but he's educated himself. So that's the thing I think people need to do, however it works uh, for them. Let's talk for a second about getting into fights online. Maybe a year ago, you published an AB blind test, I think it's called, oh, a yeah. microphone cable. Could you tell that story? Because I thought that was really interesting. Oh, sure. Do you have another hour? <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened is I've been for a long time, I've been, uh, I think I'm just skeptical by nature. And I think people confuse skepticism with, with uh, cynicism, which it shouldn't be. Um, but just sort of my nature. And um, uh, years ago, I kind of got started going to these uh, uh, co uh, conferences like this guy, James Randi has this thing called the Amazing Meeting. And I was at the very first one uh, in Orlando where there was 150 people. And I don't go anymore, but uh, now there's 1,500 or 2,000 people with the thing. It's huge. Um, and I loved it because there's a mixture. Randy's a retired magician, and uh, there's a mix mixture of um, uh, show business and, uh, and science, which is basically what my whole you know, career has been about. So they did all this stuff and kind of got me interested in these things. And actually, even before that, uh, Dan Dugan, who's the the guy behind the Dugan Mixer, uh, who's there in San Francisco, um, he, uh, years and years ago in an AES convention, he did this uh, hilarious cable test where he took all these audiophile claims 
and, um, and just tested them. They said, okay, well, if you put your speaker cable up on little ramps, then it'll sound better. So he goes, okay. So he bought the ramps, and he did a blind test. And this is basically where he had somebody in the other room, you know, run the cable on the ramps or not. And then he had the guy in the other room, like, jump up and down on the floor to vibrate it, and he couldn't hear a difference. So, and that's, uh, you know, you need some more testing to prove that. Well, you can't really prove anything, but to, to you know, make that hypothesis stand statistically. But the process is really important to test things without... Uh, you know, blind in a way that you can't tell what it is. So uh, I don't really want to name the guy, but I don't want to beat up on him any further. But uh, somebody online who wrote in a trade magazine of ours. So oh, anyway, so it's I don't think I don't know how many audio files you have listening to your show, but I've given up arguing. No, with most them. Of, I think uh, most of the people who listen to Sound Design Live are operators and technicians and front of house engineers, those kinds of things. Cool. And I hope they're not investing in fifteen hundred hour power cords for No, and I, and I think most of them have some of their own, own equipment, but they're probably more like me where they work they're contractors and they work at a lot of different places and they probably can recommend investment in um, certain pieces of equipment, but I doubt they buy into a lot of this marketing. So so go ahead. Yeah. So I don't I don't argue with those people anymore. The not not sorry, not not your listeners, but the uh, audio files because it just isn't worth it they're, they're it's based on belief and not science so they want to if a lawyer wants to believe that his three thousand dollar speaker cables make it sound better that's fine you know you're not ripping off innocent people i mean there's some innocent people lose money but um anyway so i hadn't seen much of that in in our trade press and then this guy wrote an article saying how changing the star quad cable uh would made a dramatic improvement in the sound of his show. He was on tour with uh, Katie Wang, I think. Um, so and can by, I just interrupt? Because uh, probably everybody knows this, but it's more of a kind of cable that comes up in studio use, I think. Star, Star Quad is oh, a brand, right. and um, the important thing is that there's two, as a pair of wires, a pair of connectors for each pin. And there is, a, there is definitely a, a reason to use Star Quad that... Uh, for balanced transmission, and I talk a little bit about that in my book because we have the same issue in data communication stuff. But for balanced transmission, that construction of uh, twisted pair and then star quad. Twisted pair is actually patented by Alexander Graham Bell, which is kind of interesting. Um, but star quad does have better uh, noise immunity. So if you're in a very noisy environment, it's a good thing to use. So, And microphone signals are very uh, small, little low-voltage, tiny power things. So something like StarQuad cable can definitely, could certainly improve your sound by rejecting noise. It is a better cable, but it is expensive, and I don't think you see it that often in live production. So yeah, it was a pretty big deal for him to, to come out and say, this is really important. Right, and what, the thing that I objected to, if he had said, um, hey, this, I, I was in a noisy environment and this uh, reduced it, then I mean, oh, great, that makes sense. I wouldn't even thought twice about it. But the problem was that he went into this whole thing about suddenly slipping in all these audiophile terms, which are audiophiles use them because they can't, there is no way to test it. How do you test for sound stage? Or, you know, we, I don't think if you get 10 sound people in the same room, they're not going to be able to define what warmth means. You know, so how do you test for that? So he went through all this stuff. And then, but the biggest problem I had, which is fine, I, he, anybody's welcome to claim anything they want, but his test methodology was really flawed because he changed all the cables himself and then went out to the console and said, this sounds great. So 
I just what I wrote is I I responded. This came up on uh, online, and I responded to him saying, "Well, what was your test methodology? Could you did you?" I mean, and I can think very quickly of an easy way to test that because I think one of the things I learned through all the skeptical stuff is that we're pretty good at diluting ourselves. You know, if you just invested all this money in uh, StarQuad mic cable, then you don't want to go tell the production manager you just wasted, you know, $500 on, on cable. So you want to believe, whether it's true or not, you want to believe that it improved the sound. But I think you have to uh, be completely as honest as you can. So a very easy way to test that would be just to have somebody else set the stage that night, you know, swap places. He was the monitor guy, I think. Or I think he was front of house. But anyway, swap places with the monitor guy that night uh, and just have them plug up the stage and then go out to the console. And if it's as dramatic as he had written, then it should be obvious, absolutely obvious. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the change was so dramatic as he wrote uh, that it should be completely obvious which was right. which. And then you could very easily do a test. You don't need, you know, a uh, psychology lab and PhDs to do that. You just need a, a workable process. And it's the same thing evaluating speakers, right? If you stick speakers behind a scrim and have somebody else change them, then you're going to really know which speaker you like better uh, based on reality and not based on brand or, you know, the grill color or whatever. You know, it's not, you don't have to do a lot of crazy stuff to do that. Um, so I kind of, Got into it a little bit on there, and then I actually emailed Bob McCarthy about it. Bob got in and was kind of like savaging this guy, and, and he, he, you know we weren't really trying. To, it was exciting. Yeah, we didn't <laughs> weren't really trying to be. I I really I learned long ago that just it just isn't worth. No, it was great because Bob internet, is totally cool and very appropriate, like not aggressive at all. Right, but people get you know I've been attacked like that, and I you know people get very defensive, and I don't like to make people defensive about that stuff. But I was just basically saying, you know, if this is true, I'm not, I never once told the guy that he was lying or that he was wrong. I just said, you know, in a trade magazine in our industry, you need to hold the proof to a little bit higher standard. You just need to have a better test method. So then I, uh, I don't remember the sequence, but I ended up, was going to do a USITT presentation on blind testing, exactly that. And um, so I figured, well, it would be kind of an interesting project to kind of do this. So... What I did is I was talking about uh, my colleague David Smith before. He has a Yamaha uh, Discovere at his house. So we went out there with just a little um, a Zoom recorder. Uh, I think we even used those preamps. Um, I think, no, I'm sorry. We, we used a um, uh, USB Pre, which has a little better, higher quality preamps. So we went out to his house, set up uh, one microphone. Um, like, no, two, I'm sorry, but we recorded the same thing. Same exact microphones, and we with the Discovere, the performance is you know repeatable to some pretty high standard. I mean, obviously, it's not exactly the same as a mechanical system, but it's 99.999% the same. So we played the Disco, Discovere and then recorded it um, the, uh, with StarQuad cable and uh, without. So, and with regular old cable that we pull from our stock. So the StarQuad was brand new Whirlwind cable that I bought. So we recorded that, recorded the same piece twice with that, or the same short snippet, like four or five of them. And then, uh, I'm not going to remember the whole process without going to look it up, but um, basically, I, I, all, the only thing I did was uh, uh, I normalized the two files so that they were... Uh, I normalized them together, so they, 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 whatever gain in, increase was exactly the same on both, so there was no change at all uh, with that. And then I, cut, I flipped a coin and then cut the um, clips together between uh, the start quad and the um, 
regular one, and then I stuck that whole thing online, and I had people, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm jumping out of order here. So the, the test methodology is what's called an ABX test, and I learned about that 100 years ago at AES where I won a t-shirt because I could hear the difference between one TDK cassette brand and another. Um, but basically, um, you uh, have an, a known A, and then a known B, and then you have an X. So we played the, um, I don't remember the order, but we played the star quad recording, the non-star recording, and then I flipped a coin to come up with what X was. And the way uh, I put it together, I, I did it so as little as possible I could possibly influence anybody. For example, we recorded the voiceover of the clip numbers before we had done uh, anything else. So when I was cutting that together, there's no tone in my voice or anything like that that could influence it because I had no idea at that time. And I put it online, and uh, we, we ran a Survey Monkey survey, which is great because you can put up to 10 questions on there for free. And I don't remember how many responses we had, but 100 and something. Um, and then I presented the results at USATT. And basically, if there's a really significant difference, and I can't explain the math off the top of my head, I'd have to go dig it out. Um, you should be able, this is, if you do 10 trials, and it's a real obvious difference, which is what he was claiming in his article, uh, I wasn't really claiming his, but if there was a really noticeable difference between the two, um, uh, then you should be able to hear it eight times out of ten. Because, I mean, you might miss a couple because the cat made some noise or whatever. Um, but eight times out of ten, and certainly some people should be able to get ten out of ten. And then, you know, everybody else should come in five, six, seven, eight, something like that. So uh, when we ran the statistics, there was only, I think there was a hundred and some people, you can read all this on my blog, but... There's like 100 and some people that listened to it, and I think there was two that got eight out of 10. One of those, turns out, was one of my students who has really severe hearing damage. <laughs> oh, God. So it's, it's pretty unlikely that she was actually hearing it. She most likely just got lucky. And then so, there's uh, people like, it, I, Bob McCarthy republished this, your post on his blog, and you know he's a professional and works in the audio industry, and he admitted that he couldn't hear a difference in any of them. So... Everyone has pretty right. severe I, results. Yeah, and what was interesting to me is I, when I was listening to it, so I, you know, when I got the whole thing, I listened to the whole thing myself and just basically took the test like a uh, attendee. And I'm horrible at remembering numbers, so there's no way I would remember the sequence of which one was which. I was convinced I knew that I heard something in the start yeah, quad, and I was totally wrong, absolutely yeah. wrong. So I think it's an interesting way of how you can delude yourself and. Um, so I think, but these, I think what's most important is not whether Star Quad sounds better or not, which I, I would say under my test conditions, there's no difference. If we did one under a very high EMI environment with lots of interference, electrical magnetic interference, there probably would be a significant difference. That's a real mechanism that we know how it works and so on. I mean, cable engineers can tell you about that. But what's really important, though, I think is that process. So I had a student once tell me that he had turned a subwoofer around and that it sounded better. So... I'm like, okay, well, let's just test it to make sure. Uh, leave the room. We're going to turn the lights out. Or I'm going to move the sub in a different way. I'm going to leave the room so I won't influence you. And I'm going to turn the lights out, and you tell me whether this is the new version or the old. It takes five minutes, you know. And it turned out there actually was a difference, and the reason was that the uh, drivers, and then we had it in the corner, and my hypothesis to why this happened was the drivers were closer into the corner um, and I think, I think we heard a difference. I don't remember anymore, but this is years ago. But I'm, my point is you can uh, apply that process to all kinds of things and then not be deluding yourself. And I think we, 
you know, we can only push the, the state of our art forward if we're, if we're doing it based on actual information. And I think, just one last thing on that, that, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, you skeptics, you know, you don't want to believe in anything. It's just, no, we just want, you know, it's the old Carl Sagan quote that, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If there was really a, a dramatic difference um, in the uh, cable construction, then we want to know that, you know, and because then we, everybody would want to use it. And then the funny thing was at the... Um, at the session at USITT where we announced the results, I never put this online so you're, anybody who wasn't there is getting a bonus. Somebody else who was on that tour said that this never happened at all. You should follow John's blog at controlgeek.net and he's on Twitter at jhuntington. Um, John, thanks so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you. It's really been fun, and it's, uh, it's really an honor to be on your podcast. I'm sorry if I rambled on uh, too long. Hey, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it on iTunes or send it to a friend. Hey.